Continuing in Luke chapter 18 this morning, one of the points that we saw last week in verses 1 through 8 is that, and you can look in verse 7 to see this, is that those who are in Christ, those who are in Christ are not in the same situation as we saw the widow once was. So you might have to go back and listen to that if you missed it. Um, but they're not in the same position that the widow is in or the resources that the widow doesn't have or has no advocates or no help. Because as Jesus says there in verse 7, that if you are in Christ, then we are God's elect. Right? We, are, we are God's elect, which means that God has loved us before the foundation of the world. And so what that means is that when we are facing that hopelessness and that losing heart situation that Jesus says, I'm going to tell you this parable so that you would always pray and that you would not lose heart. When you're facing the adversary and hardship and pain and persecution, to remember that your position is not the same as the widow's because you are of the elect. You are loved by God through Christ who then has adopted you as sons. So we'll make sure we, we're keeping this in, in context here. And then he says, therefore, he's going to give us justice. So Jesus says that because he is encouraging the church. And there was more yes, last week than that. But he's encouraging his church to be faithful and persevering, to pray always, and not to lose hope. Now, over the years, we have unpacked this doctrine. Not exhaustively. We'll never get there. Maybe not even heaven. We may not ever get to the exhaustiveness of that doctrine, the doctrine of, of election. But one of its greatest effects that it has in the church is not just encouragement, which is huge when you're going through trials and persecution and affliction and things like that, but also its greatest work and mark in the body of Christ is its work of humility. It does a work of humility, and, and over the years we've, we've unpacked that to, together. And, and so one of the things that we've we taught is that if someone says that they hold to the doctrines of grace, they hold to this uh, doctrine, and, and yet if they are prideful and they are arrogant, then they really do not understand the doctrines of grace. They may have a, 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 an affirmation of them, but it's not a belief that has actually transformed and changed their hearts because that's what it does. The grace of God only does one thing in us first, and that it humbles us. It humbles us completely because it shows us who we are in light of God and the undeserving grace that he is pouring out on us and lavishing on us in Christ. And so our, our passage this morning, although it doesn't talk about the doctrines of election or the doctrine of election, it does show us the response of one who has received grace in the way that we would understand the doctrines of election or the doctrines of grace. Because the one who understands this, the elect, we understand our sinfulness before a holy God and an undeserved grace. And yet God, through Christ, has taken that grace and he has lavished it out upon us so that all their righteousness is not our own not even what we believe is not our our righteousness or what we can stand on but it's christ's righteousness 
So as Christians, our simple words, even this morning, we just sang that song, not in me. It's not I, but Christ. So let's, let's look at this passage this morning, and, and I'm going to show you what Jesus is, is teaching us this morning in this, in this passage. So Luke chapter 18, look at verse 9 with me. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's the parable, verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to see and to hear his holy inspired word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Now again, like last week, Jesus gives us a parable. But also in giving us the parable, he, he tells us from the get-go, this is what this parable is going to do. This is the point of my parable. So right at the beginning, he's telling exactly what it is. And so also, just like last week, he's introducing us to two characters, a, a tax collector and a Pharisee. Again, two more characters on the opposite end of the religious and social and moral spectrum of the day. Right? So, so if that's the case, then Jesus is actually he's going to show us something really big here in this parable. Now, here's a big thing that we need to understand about this, about this parable. We, we've all probably have heard this in some place or another. We've taught before or, or whatnot. So, so we're already coming at this parable with a perspective um, that maybe wasn't the same perspective as those who first heard it. Right? So, so we've already heard from Luke over and over again that the Pharisees were setting themselves up against Jesus, right? And, and we've also heard Jesus say, don't be like these guys, right? So we have a perspective that the bad guy in the parable is the Pharisee. But to the first century hearers of this parable, and maybe even the disciples themselves, if they haven't actually caught on yet to what Jesus is saying, is actually the opposite. They would have believed that the Pharisees were the good guys, and they would have believed that the tax collector was the bad guy. And, and, and rightfully so. Rightfully so. The tax collector is the bad guy, right? He is a bad guy. He is the one, from the outset, is the one who trusted in himself. He's the one who, who actually treated with evil contempt. And so right from the bat, remember, they're thinking that the tax collector is the bad guy and the Pharisee is the good guy. So we may not get the shock value that they would get in hearing this parable when Jesus at the end tells us that it was the tax collector 
who goes home justified and not the Pharisee. That's a big point in understanding, I think, in what's happening here. A big point, because oftentimes there's a perception of righteousness that, that some people have. There's a perception of righteousness, even with a, a resume and a posture of righteousness, who look like the good guys, who feel like the good guys. But in the end, they seem only to be trusting in their own righteousness. They're trusting in their own self-righteousness for their justification before God. And that's what Jesus is getting at in this passage. Now, no one wants to be called a Pharisee. This is kind of another evidence of the day why it's different. No one wants to be called a Pharisee today. Right? You call someone a Pharisee, you're going to get punched in the face. That's just the way it's going to be. Right? Uh, even, even legalists, I mean, who are legit legalists, independent, fundamental legalists, they don't want to be called Pharisees. They don't want to be called Pharisees. No one wants to be called Pharisees. And it's because they had a, a self-righteousness that just smells really funny and smells really bad. And it's the, in this kind of self-righteousness that we know about the Pharisees throughout this gospel study that we've been doing is the kind of self-righteousness that, that Jesus has kind of been hammering at and chipping at, not only in, for them in their day, but also for us. Because what is so prominent seemingly all around us is that, is that there's thousands of people here and around the Bible Belt that consider themselves Christians and, and believers in Jesus solely because they made an, ex, an external profession of faith. But the reality is, like the Pharisees, there is a, a no real transformation. There's been literally zero transformation and a zero desire to actually follow Jesus. Now, the problem with that, the, the, the problem with that belief and saying, I believe in Jesus and, and I'm a Christian, but yet have no evidence of real transformation, the problem with that is the Bible. The Bible shows us a, a completely different picture over and over again. I mean, look at the, the book of Acts. Consider the book of Acts. Followers of Jesus, they, they not only claim to believe in Christ, but there was evidence over and over that they actually followed Christ, that there was transformation from Christ, and they desired Christ. And what's really interesting about the book of Acts, very rarely do they call themselves Christians. In fact, it's, it's uh, the world that calls them Christians. Their identity, meaning their name, meant nowhere near as much as it meant to actually following Jesus. And yet somehow around us, thousands have gone to VBS, Sunday school, Bible studies, conferences, revivals, and at some point made a decision to call themselves Christian for one way or another, prayed a prayer, shook a preacher's hand, got baptized, and now they've been told, hey, you are, you are in. And since then, been no transformation, no desires for the things of Christ. And over and over, this same story has played itself out thousands of times. I mean, tragically, Tragically, you literally could walk around Statesboro and nine out of ten people you see on the street, you ask them if they are a Christian, they will say yes. And then you'll ask them, well, where do you go to church? And they probably will have struggle giving you a name of the church they go to. And if they can, they'll give only go maybe once a month. Or maybe if they're even better than that, they go all the time. 
Let's see, what our parable is telling us today is that it's not our works. It's not our self-righteousness. It's not even that identity of what we claim as being that one thing that justifies us. Jesus tells us that it is something else, which totally blew up the stereotype between the Pharisee and the tax collector. Verse 9 gets us right into it because Jesus just tells us exactly what it is. He says, this parable is about those who trust in themselves. And they trust their own righteousness. They trust in the things that they can do and the things that they have done. And he also, then he tells us, in, inevitably, those who trust in themselves and trust in their own righteousness, inevitably, it leads to the contempt of other people. Meaning they treat other people as beneath them. But what Jesus shows us here is that the righteousness that comes from him is the only righteousness that will justify us before God. And that it only comes through God's grace and God's mercy received in faith. And that's what Jesus is driving home. So let's, let's unpack the parable. You'll, you'll see where we where this comes up. So he introduces us to two characters, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and both of them, remarkably so, are going to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, one a tax collector. Now, let's make things real clear that Jesus is getting pretty ruthless with the Pharisees here. He's getting pretty ruthless with them. I mean, he, he is intentionally saying it was a Pharisee. Not just a teacher of the law, not a rabbi, not a priest, but it was one of you guys. Pharisee. He's getting to the heart of the Pharisees and the hearts of tax collectors. In verse 11, we see the, the prayer and the, and the posture of the Pharisee who's in the temple. And he says, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, unjust adulterers, even, or, in, or even like this tax collector. Now, again, we want to read this prayer, and we want to read into it the bad guy, right? We want to read here the bad guy, but when we, because uh, it does smell like that self-righteousness, but I kind of want to suggest to you this morning that his prayer is not as bad as you think. Because if you read it again, his prayer is actually quite God-centric, God-centered, who does he thank? Does he thank himself? Does he tell God to look at him and thank him because of the good job that he is doing? That God should be proud of him? No. He says, I thank you, God. This is a God-centered prayer in many ways. And he thanks God for his morality. Right? He he hasn't cheated on his wife. He hasn't betrayed his country. He hasn't stolen from his neighbors, etc. But let's not try to get all high and mighty here. Because you've probably prayed something like this before yourself. Have you ever been somewhere publicly? And unfortunately, you've witnessed kind of a family meltdown take place. 
If you ever go out to eat with us, you'll see some of that sometimes. <laughs> but I mean kind of the thing that's like, you know, it's different from just a bunch of kids squalling and parents just losing their mind. But it's like, like there's a legit fight going on between a couple or, you know, something not good. And it's awkward. Like it just makes everyone, you just feel, makes the whole place awkward. And then you're kind of embarrassed for them. But what instantly kind of comes to mind? Man, I'm glad we're not like them, right? And, and, and that's not a, like a horrible thing. I mean, it's just reality. And, and that's kind of what's happening here, right? Because aren't you, aren't you grateful to God that he has saved you, saved many of you from a lifestyle of sin? Aren't you glad that God has saved you from a lifestyle of wickedness and reviling of his name? that we see so many around us who have been trapped in, or maybe you've been trapped in once yourself. You might have seen these things around you, and family members and in other places. And, and so in our hearts, you've, we've thanked God. God, I'm, I'm glad that by your grace and by your mercy, I'm not like that anymore. I'm just not like that. You know, I, I used to think, when I was in college, I used to think that when I wasn't going to be very useful in the ministry because I personally didn't have what I called the powerful testimony of being, uh, you know, rescued out of a drug addiction or, or, or alcohol abuse or something really bad like that, right? Or some things, some things like that. And I used to think, how can I be useful? I, I, I really don't know. And, and thankfully, I began to learn that it was God's mercy God's grace for saving me before I could do any of those things and give in to those desires. And, and this guy's prayer shows us that he's taking morality and holiness very seriously. But not just his morality is he taking serious, but also he, he shows us how religious he is. You see that in verse 12. He, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get. Now, these were two things that Pharisees were very, like, ferocious about. They were very serious about these things. And, and here's the reason why I think he named these two. They're serious about a lot of things. But, but these two things, I think Jesus really points these out. Because these are the two things that most people probably struggle with. Like, barely do. <laughs> like, when was the last time you fasted kind of thing. Right? And, and tithing, another big struggle for, for so many people. And I think that's what he's, he's bringing, Jesus is bringing out. Because this is, they're showing that there's like this extraordinary religious righteousness that these guys believe in. I mean, they just didn't uh, fast once a week. They fasted twice a week. He didn't just give 10% of his, of his tithe. He tithed on everything he had. And let me just give you an example. So a farmer, right, would farm, and then the farmer would tithe his crop. Well, then the Pharisees already tithing everything he had previously. And when he bought whatever he needed from the farmer, he then would tithe off of what he bought from the farmer. So there's just tithes going all the way around. All his bases are being covered. He tithed on everything. He tithed on not only his income, but he also tithed on everything that they purchased. So they were very serious about these two things. And that's what makes a Pharisee a Pharisee. 
They're very zealous in these things of holiness and to be separate. And again, there's, there's nothing wrong with fasting. There's no one, if you fast, now if you come out and you tell everybody you're fasting, then yeah, we can call you holier than that, right? But if you're fasting, that doesn't mean you're a Pharisee. If you tithe, you're not a Pharisee. Praise God. That's how we're surviving. You're not a Pharisee. That's, these aren't bad things. Jesus doesn't point these things as bad, as bad things. In fact, Jesus even tells, tells his church that, hey, when I leave, that's what I really want you to do. I want you to fast. Fast and pray. So they were ferocious and very serious about these things of God and being holy and being obedient to the law. They were major league all-stars when it comes to the law and morality and religion. Not just high school ball players who won a championship and they're just happy about that. No, these guys were like major leaguer all-stars. These are the kind of people that would have their, the law memorized before they even turned 12. How many verses can you say this morning? <laughs> Ten, maybe? So there's the Pharisee. Let's get to the tax collector. Now, this isn't the first time we've encountered tax collectors in Luke's gospel. Remember, one of the disciples like, is actually there with Jesus. Can you imagine this conversation, too? And, you know, Matthew, Levi, he's, praise God, he encountered Christ and the grace of Jesus. But he's like, man, Jesus always uses me as a, as a sermon illustration. I don't do that to y'all. Jesus does. So, uh, But, man, Jesus uses Levi here in a sense uh, of, of, of not being, in a sense, the good guy here. And, and Jesus, all, or the, the Pharisees often even accused Jesus of, the, of, of uh, impropriety, Im, immorality of eating and fellowshipping with Pharisees. Uh, Luke would give us the details in the gospel that, that often sinners and tax collectors would come to Jesus. That was unheard of for teachers and preachers of the day. So there's a glorious good news about the, the tax collector here for those who are not religious or even moral, those major league sinners, the tax collector. And, and these guys were, were, were not just sinners, but they were tax collectors. Like, there's this whole other level or category of, of sinner here. Right? These, these kind of, uh, uh, and, and we kind of go soft on the tax collector a little bit because all we really know about them is Zacchaeus. And we have the cute little children's song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Get Kate to sing that to you all after church sometime. It's precious. But we kind of go soft on them because of Zacchaeus. But Zacchaeus was a scoundrel. Tax collectors were, were scoundrels. They were considered worse than sinners because they would extort their own countrymen to fund Roman occupation, which often was, was brought about harsh abuse and oppressiveness upon their, their people, which historically brought about the crucifixion of thousands of Jews. And tax collectors were their own people taking money from them for themselves and also funding the Roman army and the Roman occupation. And so tax collectors were treated like scum. They were hated. So when Jesus is using a tax collector, he, he's giving us a real strong example and a very powerful example of the gospel. Look at verse 13. Look, look, what, look at his posture in his prayer. He says, but the tax collector standing far off. So here's his posture. He's standing far off, and he, and he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. 
but he beat his breast saying, here is his prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. You see his posture. Now I wonder, I wonder if this little parable here of the tax collector, I wonder if this is where Christians first got the idea of notion to pray with their heads, closed, heads bowed and eyes closed. I don't know that for sure, but I wonder if this is where it came from. Because this is the, the Christian posture, isn't it? A posture of humility. Old Testament prayers were often eyes open and, and, and hands open wide. And I think there's, that's appropriate as, as, as well. Maybe through this parable, Jesus is setting up for us the posture of Christianity. That Christians have a posture of patience and confession, and humility, and repentance. Because look at the prayer. Simple as it is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's two distinct marks at work here. And first, there's a, there's a presence of humility and a presence of faith that he has in this parable in only God alone. There's, there's a presence of humility and a presence of faith in only God alone. You, know, you see that in his, his position, right, in his posture. That his eyes are closed, his head is bowed, he's beating his chest in agony, agony. He bows his head and he's beating his chest because he's so broken and he's so embarrassed by his life. He's standing off because he is such a sinner before a holy and just God, not even deserving to come into the temple. And he only deserves the wrath of God. And because of this, he is, he is absolutely wrecked and he's broken from his sin before God. He is swimming in his own tears. Sin has caught up to this man. And he's beyond that phase where everybody knows he's, he's exposed. He's beyond that phase of, of getting angry at everybody and blame shifting. He is in the place where he's broken. He's like, I am a sinner. I am broken. I am wicked before you, God. And he goes only to the place where he can find forgiveness. Second notice that he does not base his hope. Listen to this. He does not base his hope for acceptance and forgiveness on anything of him. He has no acceptance before God in himself at all. Instead, he pleads only the mercy of God. God have mercy on me, a sinner. That's just like what David prayed in Psalm 51 this morning. Be merciful to me. Because God, you alone are merciful. He looks away from himself and he looks to God. And, and Jesus is showing us here that nothing we do, nothing good, Nothing bad, nothing moral, nothing righteous, nothing upright or just or kind or horrible or wicked. None of those things are the basis for which God accepts us. 
The tax collector, verse 14, Jesus tells us, is the only one who went away justified. And he was the least likely of the two. Showing that his acceptance was based only on the grace and mercy of God. And that, brothers and sisters, is the basis of our acceptance in Christ alone. That's who we trust alone. His righteousness is our only righteousness that will justify. That's whose righteousness we need. This is why we sang the song, Not in Me This Morning. Because the message of the song is the message that Jesus is telling us this morning. And the prayer of the sinner is the message of the song. The tax collector being the worst of the worst of the worst of example of sinners, no matter what we have done, no matter who we are, whether we are a Pharisee or we are a tax collector, we all need the righteousness of Christ for our justification. And we will find it nowhere else but in Christ. So he's contrasting these two prayers and these two men. And verse 14 tells us how the tax collector went home justified, and the Pharisee just went home thinking he was justified. That's scary. <laughs> thinking he was justified. Remember what I said. The, the Pharisee's prayer smelled a little bit like self-righteousness. Well, I'm now going to show you what was wrong with it. I'm now going to show you the, the problem and what it reveals about him. If you've been in a Baptist church long enough, especially um, my age and above, then you would be familiar with some of the various evangelism programs that have kind of come through the church uh, uh, over the years, like Evangelism Explosion or uh, Faith was another big one, and, and there's a few others. Bill can probably list them all. He's professional in all of them. And, and I, I think in one of those, it might have been from Evangelism Explosion, um, there was a question that you would learn uh, and you would practice on each other before you would go out and actually try to share the gospel. Well, the, the, the question that you kind of wanted to bring people to when you were sharing the gospel with them was this, and it was, and you all heard this before in some way, um, was if you were to die today, right? Y'all know exactly where I'm going. Now, if you were to die today and God were to ask you why he should let you into heaven, what would you tell him? Right? We've, we've heard that. Most of us have heard that question before. Now, not exactly the best question to ask a total stranger. Hey, man, if you were to die today, hey, what's your deal, right? Not exactly the best question to ask today, but, but still a, 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 a decent question. And, and if you were to catch these two guys coming home from the temple that day, and you were to ask each of them this question, if you were to die today, how would they answer that question? How would they answer that question? What would they say? Well, here's what the Pharisee would say. He'd say, well, I should be let into heaven because I was not an adulterer. I was not a liar. I didn't curse. I wasn't a thief. People looked up to me instead of looking down on me. I tithed on everything I had. I fast twice a week. I've done all these things beyond what I was supposed to do. I was obedient to the law. I thanked you even for these things in my life. I was even grateful. And that's why you should let me into heaven. 
Sounds right. Sounds logical. And so here's the problem, though. The problem was, wasn't that he didn't give credit to God. The problem was he didn't, not that he didn't give credit to God for his spiritual growth and maturity and holiness, but it's that he thought that his spiritual growth and holiness and maturity is what justified him. He thought that his acts of growth gave him that right standing before God. And what Jesus tells us, he went away not justified before God, although believing he was. Listen, he, he was grateful. He was thankful. But he had what? What was he missing? He had no sense of his own sin. He had no sense of his own need for forgiveness at all. There's no recognition at all that he is a sinner. Just everyone else around him is. Even in his thanksgiving to God, what is the one thing he didn't thank God for? Forgiveness. Also in that prayer of his, he uses I five times. I did this. I did these things. Wasn't afraid to talk about himself. And that's why it smelled like self-righteousness. He trusted that the basis of his peace was completely upon what he did. And he missed this need for forgiveness and grace because he is a sinner too, like the tax collector. Good works are good. And in fact, we are saved and we are predestined according to Ephesians 1 and 2. We are predestined and saved to do good works. But good works and good morality and good religious practice is not the basis of our salvation, our election, or predestination. It is by God's grace alone. His answer to the question was completely deficient, wasn't it? But what about the tax collector? What, what set this major league center apart? How would he answer the evangelism question? So what would you say to God, tax collector? He'd probably say something like this. And this is, I think, very, very much what we get out of his short prayer. He would say something like this. I have nothing to say. I have nothing to bring before God. I have nothing good of my own. There's no prayer that I can pray. There's no dress that I can dress like. There's no lifestyle that I can live. There's no amount of devotion or tithing or fasting. There's no amount of my even brokenness and in my own tears. And there's no amount of me lifting my hands or songs that I sing or memorizing truth. I have nothing. I have nothing to bring before God for which he should let me in to heaven. He shouldn't let me in. I, I shouldn't be in there. That's the, that's the point of why I'm pleading for forgiveness. I can only plead for the mercy of God. I can only plead for the grace of God. I can only plead the blood of Christ. That is my only hope for forgiveness for getting in. Only through the cross of Jesus do I have any hope for my salvation to be forgiven and to be adopted. And that is why he went away justified. 
because he knew he had nothing. Nothing. But by God's grace alone was his justification through faith alone in Christ alone. So the answer simply in the point of the message, not I, but Christ. And unfortunately, what I think would can easily happen to many Christians. They fall into the danger of trusting themselves. We simply we can fall into danger of trusting ourselves. We, we, we get saved and we begin to walk in a way that, that, that looks Christian and, and we even rejoice in some of the things that we've been set free from and we begin to walk in this whole Christian culture and saying the Christianese kind of words and pursuing holiness and all the ways that we've been shown and taught and how to, to do. And, and before you know it, what can happen is, is that Christ really isn't in the picture at all anymore. There's a lot of gladness. There's a lot of satisfaction in that Christian life. But when dug deep, it's built upon a spiritual victory that you have achieved and that you trust in. And even though you may be given God credit somewhere in, in all of that, in the middle of that, there's this subtle self-exaltation, like in the Pharisee's prayer. That may never come out of our mouths, but in our hearts, and even sometimes in our actions, in the way that maybe we look down on others, or can look down on others, in that contempt. If you've ever been on the receiving end of another Christian looking down on you, or another Christian's, and I'm using it loosely here, them berating you, then you've lost sight of someone, or they've lost sight, let me correct that, then you've seen someone who has lost sight completely of who the author and perfecter of their faith is. It's not them, it's Christ. And that is why Jesus is our boast. And that's why he is the, the fuel of our worship. His grace is the fuel of our worship. It's, it's, it is why to an onlooking world we look like a bunch of weirdos when we stand up on Sunday mornings and we sing together. Because his sovereign grace is the fuel of our worship. And if it was only by the law that we could obtain justification... According to Hebrews, and, and I think also somewhere in uh, Romans, maybe Romans 7, Romans 3, then Christ died for nothing. Then Christ died for nothing. So here's the thing. Let me wrap up with this. Maybe this morning you've come like the Pharisee. You're, you're truly grateful for the work of God in your life, and you're, you're thankful for his blessings and favor on your life. And, and you're, you're grateful maybe also that, that you're not who you used to be. Praise God. There's nothing wrong with that. But maybe you've also lost sight of the fact that your only hope of justification is in Christ alone. Not in me, not in you, but in Christ. In Christ alone. It's easy again to look at our own selves and our own righteousness and forget about his grace. 
And so my prayer for you, if you come in as the Pharisee, my prayer for you is that this morning you would cling to the mercy of God, seeing that you are a sinner and that you've only been saved by grace. And that you need forgiveness and grace just like the tax collector who may come in this room. Because just as Jesus says at the end of verse 14, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Or maybe you've come in like the tax collector. Or you know someone like the tax collector. Or you were like someone who was like the tax collector. Isn't this passage just wonderful news? I mean, it's such wonderful news. that The most wicked, the most vile, the most guilty. We're all guilty. We're all wicked. We're all vile. And we all come at the same place. We all come at this, the same place like the tax collector. And no matter what you are guilty of, you can't even be forgiven and be justified. And that there's mercy and there's grace in the cross of Christ. If you only look to Christ alone and put your faith in the person and work of Christ alone. So brothers and sisters, let's remember this morning from this passage that it's not I, that it's not you, it's not us, but it is in Christ alone. And that we would live in that and we would walk in that and we will sing in that because that is the glorious truth of why we are here. Not in me, but Christ. That's our song this morning. That is our gospel. And brothers and sisters, that is our only, only hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you. By your grace, you have looked upon so many sinners, so many tax collectors, and you have given grace. And you have extended forgiveness. And you have accomplished that through the work of Christ. That his perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross satisfied your wrath toward sinners. Now in a way where we can receive the righteousness of Christ. Oh God. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And you answered. And you answered. So, oh Lord, let us, let us just swim in that this morning. Help us wherever we may be. Maybe we've come in as the tax collector. Maybe we've come in as the Pharisee. But Lord, let us leave justified. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.